On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, uh, we're going to be talking a little bit about the coronavirus. Unsurprisingly, it is the only thing seemingly that's going on these days. And I'm including the stock market in that because the coronavirus is having something to do with the stock market, with gas prices, with cruising, with, well, all kinds of stuff. We're going to talk about all that. We're also going to talk about, is this merely hysteria? Have we just lost our minds? Because there's lots of other diseases and illnesses and viruses that are out there that are doing way more damage than coronavirus. Why are we so hung up on this one? Is this just something that we are creating unintentionally? And the more we play it, the more upset we get, and the more upset we get, the more we play it. Well, we'll deal with all that stuff. Oh, and we'll also find out if the Allen Cup here in Hamilton is going to be canceled because of the coronavirus. Enjoy. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. It's crazy day. The world is going crazy in front of us. Stuff is happening. We saw more sports events canceled and talked about being canceled today. We've seen uh, endless press conferences and announcements about what's going on. And of course, we saw the stock markets today all over the world take an un, not unprecedented, but nearly unprecedented pounding. I mean, we know what the unprecedented levels would be. Nobody wants to even talk about those moments. Uh, but the Dow Jones today down two, over 2,000 points, down 7.79%. The TSX down 1,660 points, 10.3%. It was just about the hardest hit or one of the very hardest hit markets in the world. If you are someone who has investments, if you are planning for your retirement, if you are retired, if you are, well, let's put it this way. Today would have been a very good day not to be watching minute-by-minute, blow-by-blow accounts of what was happening with your investments because it was not a lot of fun. Uh, Joining us to talk about all this, Marvin Ryder from the Negroot School of Business. Sir, how are you today? I'm fine, thank you. Much better than the market. Well, that's good to hear. You couldn't be worse, I guess, is the uh, the short answer to that one. Uh, Remind me, Marvin, of this. Uh, Did this kind of thing happen during SARS, during that scare, and during the H1N1 and during the Ebola scares? Well, you threw a lot of things in there together. So the one that was most pertinent for us would have been SARS uh, way back uh, almost 20 years ago because um, there was a node of the SARS virus that had caught on in Toronto. And, in fact, over that year, that season, Toronto's tourism numbers went down quite a little bit. But, no, the numbers weren't as bad on the stock market. And I think the difference between then and now, of course, is the pervasiveness of the Internet. And everybody is connected. Everybody is reading, whether it's a Twitter feed or a Facebook feed or social media. And it's almost the case that we're getting more information than we can process, or as I like to say, contextualize. You see these numbers, and you don't have anything to compare them to, so you see them and you think the worst. Whereas if I could put some context around them, you might say, oh, that's not as bad as I thought it was, but we just don't have the ability because it comes so fast at us. The uh, And also I would suggest, and, and you can jump in on this one, but we had the double whammy today because you've got the coronavirus thing going on, and I know they're all connected, but then we get this oil price war, and so yeah. now you get two giant things playing on the economy, both negative, and you see this happen. Well, let's, let's start with the one that really caused the problems today, which is very much around oil. Uh, last Friday, there was a meeting of OPEC, the Oil Producing Exporting Countries, which is a cartel. They, their whole purpose in existence is to try to fix the price of oil, and they met because they didn't like the price of oil, which then was around $47 a barrel. They would prefer to see world prices closer to $60 a barrel. So they decided at this meeting to talk about the possibility of cutting back production by one and a half million tons, one and a half million barrels, excuse me, one and a half million barrels of oil a day. 
but to do this correctly, it can't just be one country. They've got to spread that around to other people. And at attending that meeting was a country you may have heard of called Russia. Russia was not is not an original member of OPEC, but they formed an alliance in 2016. When this idea of cutting back oil production was floated, Russia immediately said no. They had no interest in that. They wanted to pump just as much oil as they possibly could. And so Friday, the alliance collapsed. And that's when we saw oil prices go from $47 a barrel to around $42.50 a barrel. And that's what caused the markets to fall 700 points. Then we had the weekend. And I assumed that cooler heads would prevail and you know something good would happen this morning. Instead, this morning done, and what we found was that Saudi Arabia wants to teach Russia a lesson, and how they're going to do it is through a price war. They slashed their price of oil to around $35 a barrel. Russia said, oh, yeah, and they cut their oil to $34 a barrel, and that's when the market started to go crazy. In the case of Toronto, nearly 50% of the stocks traded on the Toronto Stock Exchange are connected to oil. If oil is dropping by, as we found out by the end of today, nearly 25%, the price of oil went down nearly 25%, then the fortune of those country, uh, those companies are reflected. The New York Stock Exchange also went down. That's a record today. We've not ever seen it go down 2,000 points in a day. Uh, and why is that? Because a third of the stocks on the New York Stock Exchange are connected to oil. So that really today was much more about oil. But your connection to coronavirus, when you have fears of coronavirus and then you have fears around oil, you don't add them together, you multiply them together. I use the example, it's not 3 plus 3 gives you 6, but it's 3 times 3 gives you 9. That's the combination, that's what really led to absolute panic today on the markets. And that's why, because of people don't figure they won't be traveling, they won't be driving, they'll just, I mean, why would oil suddenly be the thing that would create, come from coronavirus? Well, it's not from coronavirus, but the thing is, you know, oil prices at today they closed at just around thirty-one fifty a barrel, thirty-one dollars. We haven't seen numbers like that since nineteen ninety-one, and when you ask the two countries involved, Russia and and Saudi Arabia, they glibly say, "Oh, you think that's bad? We may cut some more tomorrow." And it's that kind of of um, petropolitics, if you will, that threw another scare into the market. Uh, it really isn't about coronavirus. It's now about uh, competing nations who used to cooperate to prop up the price of oil. They now seem to be doing everything they can to drop the price of oil. But in the case of Alberta and Saskatchewan, this is horrible news for their economies. They can't sell oil at that rate. They've got to give it a discount to pay for the expensive way of transporting it on train cars. They'll be lucky to get $20 a barrel for their oil. And that, that just means you're going to see uh, projects shut down. You're going to see layoffs. If this continues, and I'm not saying it's going to, tomorrow they could wake up and kiss and make up, but if this continues, this sort of price war for even a week, guarantee you're going to hear about big layoffs in Alberta and Saskatchewan. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Marvin, you were on with Bill Kelly, busy guy today, I know, but you were on with Bill Kelly this morning talking about the early moments of what was happening on the stock market. And one of the things you said, because I was listening, by the way, uh, one of the things you said, and I think quite accurately, is there will be some folks uh, who may be quite thrilled with what's happening to the oil sector, that it's taken a pounding and that it's not going to be as uh, in such good health. They don't want our oil sector to be healthy. Maybe you can take a second here and explain, though, that um, or what the impact across the broader economy in Canada is if our oil sector takes this kind of pounding. Yeah. So, you know, the bottom line here is that while, while Justin Trudeau talks about we need to transition our economy away from its dependence on oil, that's a statement that's to be done over the next 30 to 40 years. It's not done in a day or a week or a month. 
today, one half of the stocks on the Toronto Stock Exchange have some connection to oil, whether it's the exploration of oil or the refining of oil or turning those things into plastics and making goods from them. And, and we all know in the long term we've got to move away from oil dependency and fossil fuel dependency. So those people who are applauding say, well, you see, now that oil's $30 a barrel, they're not going to build those pipelines. Well, I'm going to have bad news for you. They will build those pipelines because they are looking at it over the next 25 years. And what we're seeing happening at the moment is very short term. This, this um, if you will, uh, price war between uh, Russia and Saudi Arabia could be over in three days. It could be over in a week. It could be over in, in six weeks. Who knows exactly what it is? But if you look at it on a 30-year scale, it'll just be a tiny blip in all this. So those resources are going to be extracted one way or another. What I'd prefer, though, is that we can get rid of the turbulence. Let's do this in a more ordered and reasoned and thoughtful way to, to reduce that dependency. Alberta and Saskatchewan are very much still petro-economies. And, and to have this extra shock to the nervous system, this is not something they need. There could literally be thousands of people who find themselves unemployed in the next couple of weeks if this were to continue. And I don't wish that upon anybody. I'd rather see a more gradual transition that we can have the replacement industry, say the green industries, whether that's energy by solar power or wind power. Let's get those up and running and then transition those workers as opposed to pulling the rug out from beneath the the uh, petroleum industries. Well, and if we lose jobs and if we lose companies and if we lose the revenue from this, we lose taxes, do we not? Which then pays for infrastructure and social programs and everything else. It undercuts everything. Well, all of that, and let me throw one more in here. I hate to do this out loud, but it also leads to a recession, and nobody wants to see a recession. That's just a general falling back. Now, today you noted that the stock market dropped 10% in Canada today. Uh, in and of itself, we would call that a correction when the market goes 10%. But if I add up what's been happening over the last two weeks, we are getting really close to actually being down nearly 20% from the high. And once we get to that point, we call that a bear market. And every time we have a bear market, associated with that is a recession. So even other jobs, jobs that don't seem to have any connection to it all, like maybe um, uh, the hospitality sector, uh, hotels, uh, airlines, all of these things could be in a much worse shape, and it could affect everybody broadly. I don't want that to happen, but I fear that if we keep losing control, if we keep panicking, we're going to create our own recession, and that's not good for anybody. I'll also share this with you. How do we avoid some of this? This is the time we need our leaders, our elected leaders, to stand up. And Donald Trump today showed again just how poor he is at this. He tweeted at one point today, hey, love these, love these new oil prices. It's going to be really great at the gas stations and filling up our tanks. And I thought, you've missed the point completely here, Donald. That's not the kind of cheerleading we need. We need someone to say, we're stepping up. We're going to deal with coronavirus in the way that China did. And, Scott, I know it was last month. Maybe people have forgotten. But do you remember when China announced how serious coronavirus was that they were going to build a hospital from scratch to hold a thousand people and they were going to do it in three weeks and they did it in three weeks that's the kind of decisive action we need from our leaders now both for coronavirus and also for oil to send a positive wave into the market and they're just not getting it from the president uh, one more thing, and i got so many things I'd like to get to, but just about this idea of Alberta and Saskatchewan. Alberta for decades now has been a major payer into equalization payments. If Alberta's economy continues to go down and down and down, 
where does that money that helps to prop up some of the other provinces go, or does this then just have that trickle effect over this entire country? Yeah, it, well, it's kind of a trickle effect. So each year they add up, they, they see what are the states of everybody's economies, who's a net winner, who's a net loser, and they balance it. Now, you would remember, I guess now it's about seven years ago, that briefly Ontario needed equalization payments. Here's the biggest economy in Canada, and it needed a little help, and it got a little help. Now, we're back on the plus side. We now contribute to that pot, and it's Alberta, Saskatchewan that also contribute to that pot. But clearly, if Alberta and Saskatchewan were to go into a recession, suddenly not only would they not be able to contribute to the pot, but if you reshuffle the pot, they might need support. In the next three weeks, we're going to have a budget from Minister Morneau, the federal budget that always comes in before April the 1st. Last week, he announced that in that budget, he was going to have some support for coronavirus, especially those people who needed to be in quarantine and might lose wages while they're in quarantine. He was going to have some support for them. I guarantee you, before this week is out, expect to hear from the federal government some support for the oil and gas sector to bridge them through this difficult time, just like they came forward with some help for steel, just like they came forward with help for the automobile sector. They just can't turn their backs on this uh, oil and gas industry. So expect to hear that before the week is out. Marvin Ryder, always appreciate your time. Thanks for doing this today. I know it's busy. Glad, glad to be with you. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Continuing to talk about what's been going on, uh, we just finished with Marvin Ryder talking about the stock market side of this, the financial side of this, which has been crazy today in a very bad way. But this is also, that was oil as well as coronavirus. Also, the coronavirus is the underlying thing that's going on with everything right now. And it's causing people to behave, as I said off the top of the show, in ways that we don't normally see. At Costco, people are hoarding toilet paper. Not quite sure why toilet paper, but the, that seems important. We're doing, we're fighting for bottled water. We're like, it's, it's not civilization breaking down, but my goodness, you start to look and you go, really, really? I want to bring in someone who knows a little bit about how to start to analyze this kind of thinking. His name is Dr. Mark Busser. He is a McMaster prof in the social sciences department. One of his courses that he teaches, here's the description of it. It's an interdisciplinary examination through the lens of the social sciences of the role of hoaxes, myths, urban legends, and health scares in our contemporary social media landscape. He joins us now. Dr. Busser, thanks for doing this today. Always love having you on. Thanks a lot for having me, Scott. Uh, let me tell you something. I was reading CBS News today, and the Center for Disease Control, they reported, made a what I thought was a pretty startling announcement this morning. So far this season, 20,000 Americans have died from the flu, including 136 children. This is the highest rate since the 2009 H1N1 pandemic. And further, 34 million Americans have acquired the flu bug this year, and 350,000 have been hospitalized. Uh, as of today, 114,000 cases of coronavirus have been found, and there have been 4,000 deaths around the world. Why is one causing a panic and the other one is causing us to have a giant yawn? That's a great question. I mean, I'm not trained as, a, as an epidemiologist or in health studies, but I am trained as a political scientist. And during the, the years of uh, the war on terror, we used to do a lot of talking in political science about the difference between risks and dangers. The idea that uh, risk is something we live with every day. There's various things that can cause us harm, but sometimes the, those risks that we choose to turn into dangers for ourselves oftentimes have, uh, have a lot to do with you know, culture and our beliefs and what's new to us rather than what's actually more or less harmful. Are you still there? Yeah, sorry. Oh, sorry. 
Um, okay, so is this then because, well, what's the, the difference then between the danger and a risk is one, something that we're very familiar with, but we feel like we can deal with because we know what actions to take and the danger is something out of our control? Exactly. So I think sometimes when we look at various uh, health issues or political issues or whatever we're familiar with, we know the territory and we already have our, our agreements and disagreements about them. But when new things emerge, like a new virus, for example, then we sometimes have, a, have difficulty um, sort of checking how to react and how to respond. I mean, to be fair, though, it, when things are new, oftentimes this means we don't have the evidence and we don't have the, um, the information or the science to help determine our choices. So the fear so of the unknown. Right, exactly. And in, this, in, in some cases, that can be warranted is with new viruses, right? So um, it's, it's a bit of a complication uh, that when the science isn't there for us to sort of latch on to, it, it makes it a big challenge to do uh, debunking or to do um, dispelling of myths. Does, add the layer. does the fact that this thing or originated, we're told, in China, and China right now is the bad guy and the evil empire and all the other stuff you want to talk about, uh, at least that's the perception in, that we hear, is, does the fact that this came from China and we don't really trust necessarily the Chinese government make this more of a, a reason for people to worry? I think that does add a layer for sure. Um, I think it adds a layer to the sort of stories and the narratives and the, and the hoaxes that we hear uh, online. Sometimes those are those are bound up with sort of racist uh, images, the sort of um, fears of, of other cultures, in, especially from a North American uh, perspective. But in addition, I think the the challenge um, between governments, the kind of geopolitical tensions between America or Canada and uh, the form of government in China, but that also adds layers because it feeds into concerns that, you know, all of the, the facts or all of the, the accurate information isn't coming out uh, from a, a regime that isn't always forthcoming with clear information. Okay, but w- I like to believe that m- the majority of people in our society are reasonably intelligent people. Many are very intelligent, some less so, but nonetheless, on, on balance, we're a reasonably educated society and we have a reasonable ability, I would think, to think through these things. And when you hear that the flu, going back to the flu for a second, is an airborne thing, you can get it by someone sneezing or, I mean, it's a very easy thing to get and the numbers are way, way, way higher. This is much harder to get and there aren't the big numbers. Wouldn't that naturally make us less likely to panic about this? But it's the opposite happening. Right. Um, I think, uh, like I said, I'm not, uh, I'm not entirely um, well-versed in epidemiology or all the sort of health stuff, but what I would say is that there's um, an irony pointed out by those who study conspiracy theories and sort of hoaxes that many folks who are you know just dis- dismissive of uh, coronavirus or on the flip side are panicking of, about coronavirus to an extreme oftentimes um, their concerns about the flu um, at other points in the news cycle at other points in the year uh, is is sometimes shaky. So what I'm saying here is sometimes the same people who are really, really concerned about the coronavirus are dismissive of the flu or are questioning of the, the, um, the usefulness of getting vaccinated, for example. So there's a long um, history of, of, of evidence that shows that vaccination is safe and careful uh, and a, he- a healthy thing for public health. But there's lots of conspiracy theories out there, false ones, that allege that it's part of a sinister plot. And so yeah. what sometimes doesn't uh, doesn't jive well is folks who are sort of hungering for a, a vaccine for coronavirus and yet with available vaccines for existing uh, diseases that we, we are sort of uh, com- uh, comfortable in treating 
uh, people won't take them for fear of uh, of uh, the government or for fear of big pharmaceutical companies. And so sometimes the issue gets really complicated and people sort of uh, move back and forth between those two uh, attitudes. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Talking with Dr. Mark Busser, who teaches a course at Mac, uh, here's the description, an interdisciplinary examination through the lens of the social sciences of the role of hoaxes, myths, urban legends, and health scares in our contemporary social media landscape. Uh, Mark, here, here's the, the thing that really puzzles me about this. Right now, uh, and you can tune into any news station, any newspaper, any website, anywhere for the last few days, we announce every update of every case. Today, there's been four new cases in Ontario, whatever else. Um, if we did that for every thing, if we announced every number of people who caught the flu that day and every number of people who were diagnosed with cancer and every number of people who were given news that they now had diabetes, would we create a panic about all of those things as well? Is part of this simply being told over and over and over and over again that this is out there and you should be afraid of it? I, I think I think possibly, yes. Uh, I think that's where the... Um, where things get interesting is not just the issues of public health we're dealing with and new new viruses and new dangers, but the way in which the news media uh, covers them and the way in which people respond to the news media, especially when there's there's a you know a, a risk or danger uh, and there's fear surrounding it. Then in our 24-hour news cycle, we really get into some trouble. And we have had those things, I suppose, in the past. I mean, you could argue that the war on terror was a result of. Now, obviously, what happened in 9-11 was a very, very public, very visible thing that shook everybody. Um, and so to make the case at that time that we had to do something was was a pretty easy one. It didn't take much imagination for people. This one takes right. a little more imagination. But again, I, I, I do wonder if it's just the repetition, if it's over and over and over, the repetition that we buy it. Right. Well, I mean, uh, the news cycle favors uh, events, right? Things that have happened. And so when you have a, a, a number of cases that you can count, right, if you go from zero to one cases in a country, that's really news, right? Going from a million to a million and one is a little less startling to people. And so it makes for an easier, cleaner story for news organizations. Um, I think that the, the, the other trick with the uh, thinking back to the risk and dangers of the war on terror, I remember at the time of the war on terror, people were worried about dying in, in terrorist attacks, right? Yes. These traumatic, awful attacks. People really did suffer. People really did die. Yes. But the average person in North America was often really concerned about this. And people um, in uh, political science or in journalism would point out that you have a much greater risk of, of dying in a traffic accident or of heart disease, and that these sorts of things, we actually don't do as much as we might to stop people from dying from those things. And so if we tra- treated health policy and you know, health care issues with as much money and attention as we do terrorist attacks, then we could, we could actually save people and, and prevent some dangers. And so where... Where both of these issues, I think, connect is in those questions about where we put our resources, where we put our time. And I think this sort of backdrop of questions about health care, questions about politics, all of this is contributing to the news cycle, really taking coronavirus as something that you need breaking news about. It, it does seem that in some degree we're creating a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy. The more we talk about the panic, the more panic we create, and that leads to more coverage of panic, which leads to think something really bad is happening, and it goes on and on. 
Right. And I think, of course, uh, I'm going to leave it to, to the medical experts to sort of tell us exactly how worried to be and how concerned. But I think that um, the, the, sometimes the reporting and then in the social media age, people's sort of reaction to the reporting and speculating, that can oftentimes uh, do some damage because we deal, we end up with um, misinformation and sometimes actively you know, people joking or lying with disinformation to the point that the World Health Organization has declared um, an infodemic along with uh, the mm. coronavirus crisis, that we have this problem of information that's making a, a real public health crisis even worse. It does show, though, the uh, ease, I suppose, and, and there is something to this. Like, we're not poo-pooing the idea of this at all. I mean, something does exist. Coronavirus does exist. It's not a made-up thing. But it does seem in 2020 now, with the technology we have, social media, everything else, how easy it is to create a wave of sentiment and to, to get something pointed in a particular direction and get that ball rolling pretty fast. Right. And so sometimes people do make, make up things to sort of ride the wave of a popular topic by just creating something. So, for example, uh, listeners might have seen uh, a cartoon that has been passed around the Internet of uh, the TV show The Simpsons that makes it look like The Simpsons predicted the coronavirus. Hmm. Now, if you look into this, if you do a Google reverse image search, you can find out that this image is just gathered together from various old episodes and, and with the coronavirus uh, words typed in to make it look real. And that's an example of just fabrication of people uh, doing a, a fake joke for, for laughs. On the other hand, sometimes you get misreporting uh, where people just get it wrong. They're not trying to pull a wool over anybody's eyes. They're just trying to find a good story to tell in a, in a media environment where everybody's interested. So this is where you get stories like the Corona beer reports. Yeah, uh, yeah. Where, people, where it was reported falsely that Corona beer sales have dropped because of worries about coronavirus and the name. It turns out that if you followed the, the, the reporting on this, that beer sales took a drop in the early part of the year, partially because the Chinese markets weren't buying as much beer because people were staying indoors and many celebrations were a bit more muted this year. Um, but that got reported as if it was Corona beer specifically losing because of the coronavirus for all these superficial reasons. I hate to give you a yes or no answer, but I only have five seconds here. Would this have been the same in 2003 with SARS if we had the Twitter and Instagram and all the other social media things that we do now? I think the answer would be uh, no. Uh, it, uh, it wouldn't. Oh, sorry, it would be the same. Yes, it would yes, be the same. Okay. I, um, if we had that sort of thing, we'd see some of these same uh, complications that social media brings. Dr. Mark Busser, you can find his stuff online. You can uh, look him up. Uh, really, uh, Professor, d- d- talks about some really interesting stuff. Always love having you on. Thanks for doing this today. Thanks a lot, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. I was down in Myrtle Beach about two weeks ago, and it was about two degrees colder than this, and we were in a coat freezing our butts off and here the same temperature almost and we're in short sleeves. It's all mental. It's all, but it's great. We just exactly what we need, a little sunshine. And when I went to the front door to let in my guest, Don Robertson from the Dundas Real McCoys and Calm Choice Realty, I could actually see him outside in the door today. This, this daylight saving stuff is outstanding, except for the lack of sleep. It takes a while to catch up to it. If you're in tip-top shape like me, it, it doesn't bother you much. <laughs> but for the guys that are a little overweight, it's a challenge. It is uh, su- Sunday. There, it w- I was dragging. I mean, you wouldn't think that losing one hour would make that kind of difference. I was really dragging. The challenge is to find the hour. 
And that's well, you find it in it's in bed November, October, <laughs> or whatever <laughs> it right. is. August. I don't know when do we even. Well, do you're it? right, though. I mean, it's it was Chamber of Commerce Day. I mean, that's and yesterday was a great day too. I mean, it wasn't short sleeve, but it was a pretty spectacular start to the long day. Maybe it had something to do with the fact that Friday night, I was working really late, and I decided to go to the gym at midnight, which was stupid. I was finishing everything. And I, I have to, I think I may have to apologize to the people at the gym because I was the only one in there, not surprisingly, Friday at midnight. It speaks volumes about my social life. And, uh, in your mental I, capacity. Well, and I happen to know, and I think a couple other people do too, but I happen to know where the TV remotes are for the TVs that are all around there. And I was the only one there. So I cranked it up so I could work out with stuff blaring just as much. And I forgot to turn it down when I left. And I'm sure that Saturday morning people walked in and the TVs are going at Volume 90. <laughs> Dare I ask what channel it was on? It was the Leaf game. Okay. Sadly, but I have no oh, idea. Oh, right, Saturday. I have no idea. Not Saturday. They didn't no, play Friday. Saturday. Friday, Friday night. But I have no idea what was on that channel <laughs> by Saturday morning when they <laughs> walked in. It was probably some workout show or something or poker. And you got <laughs> the worst thing was until, the reason I know where the remotes are is because I spoke to the owner of the gym several months ago because I would go in in the evening. And every single night I would get in there, somebody had put the food channel on all the TVs. In the gym. And you're trying to work out and you are starving and they're cooking up slow roast pork ribs or something. And it's like, come on. I this solved, is torture. I, I, I solved that problem myself. I quit going to the gym. Yeah, that's right. But I finally said to the owner, well, can you tell me where the remotes are so I can change the channel? And I'm sure other people know, but they're sort of tucked away. If you didn't know, you wouldn't yeah. find it. So I'm sure that there were people who were really, really ticked off early Saturday morning, <laughs> <laughs> having, having whatever was on that channel just blaring at them because it was loud. It was, uh, it was loud. Hey, I, I have to do a test, by the way. Um, Mr. Matoku. Matako. Sorry, Mr. Matako. That's what you're calling me? That's what I'm calling you, Mr. Matako. Okay. I just want to see if anyone gets charged or goes to prison. In, in Kenya, a, a guy got six months in jail for calling his neighbor Matako, which means buttocks. <laughs> it's, it's quite an insult there, apparently. Well, I just use a three-letter <laughs> word. I, well, yeah. We, we uh, around here, if you want to insult someone, you generally go between the buttocks and come up with a word for that. <laughs> anyway, <coughs> excuse me. Well, thanks for being here. Yeah. That, that notwithstanding. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, probably better than being called butthead. Pro- I, I I cannot believe that anywhere Beavis. in the world, <laughs> somebody being called a butthawk would be insulting enough that it would send someone to jail for six months. But um, they're very serious about that's, their kindliness and compassion. That's I guess pretty tough. Pretty tough justice system. I'd spend a lot of time in jail. I'd <laughs> <laughs> be just getting out now. Every hockey game you finish, there'd be wow. armed guards waiting to carry you away. <laughs> so you said, what? Yeah, That's no. life. If they're going to take all the bad words, it'd be a long sentence. You would be the all-time winningest coach in the <laughs> Canadian Penal League. <laughs> Longest yard. Uh, yeah. Hey, um... You have the, uh, Don, by the way, as everyone I think knows, and I think I said it a moment ago, who runs the Dundas Real McCoys, one of the two teams that is bringing the Allen Cup along with the Hamilton Steelhawks to Hamilton next month, April 6th. 6th through 11th. 6th through 11th. Have you guys had any discussions about this coronavirus thing? Uh, tomorrow or Wednesday we will. Um, Could you foresee the possibility of cancelling? 
I guess so. I mean, uh, they just canceled the World Women's Championship. Now, the the, uh, the virus is far more rampant in Europe than it is in uh, Turo, Nova Scotia, which is where I believe it was going to be held. And there are no known reports that I'm aware of in uh, Hamilton, but it seems to ramp up more and more every day. We've had a death now in, in British Columbia, but it was an 80-year-old man who may have died of the normal flu. I don't know his health conditions. But was, they said on the news he was <clears throat> compromised to begin with. One of the conversations we're going to have is, because it hasn't been determined yet, whether Brantford would get a spot in it versus uh, the way it's set up now, Brantford win our league, they would automatically get a spot. And uh, there's talk that maybe they'd award it to Saskatchewan if Brantford didn't win our league, which would be tremendous hardship financially to uh, the Hamilton Steelhawks and ourselves. And But it would also make another team travel from out of the province. So there's some pretty compelling arguments that the lo- more local you keep it, the better off you'll be, especially fan-wise. That's, that's really the big concern, mm. right? Because this thing is a... Is, uh, Fan-driven, you know, ticket-driven. Th- is ticket-driven. I mean, we've got some sponsors, but... Um, you know, that's not even going to cover our costs. I mean, our cost to bring teams in is going to be in excess of $150,000. And if this coronavirus, I mean, if the NBA and, and some of these major, like in Europe, they're playing soccer in front of empty stadiums. Not just that. There was an announcement today that Formula One is ca- not allowing fans in and they're canceling one race. Formula One, how do you possibly, you're going 250 miles an hour. The virus can't travel that fast. I think they're worried about the fans. No, no but they're doing, they even canceled a race though. Like even yeah. keeping the people away. How, well, it, it is the fastest vi- virus in the world apparently. Like it's got to be. But that, but my concern is, is, is that if it keeps ramping up and there's no evidence that the media are going to let it go. I mean, I flipped on CNN this afternoon and... I mean, it was very exciting when I was I was puttering around the house for half an hour today, and they watched the boat go into Oakland. I mean, that's pretty exciting. You and I have been on cruise ships. Watching them go into an industrial port is not the most riveting TV in the world, but when you're trying to ramp up uh, the coronavirus, it is. And if the um, unless the Saudis drop oil to three cents a, a barrel, nobody's going to stop talking about it. So. There are some real concerns about, you know, maybe attendance, maybe some other fallouts, and heaven forbid, somebody's got to pay the bills if they tell us we can't play in front of people. Like, I don't think anybody in Dundas and and, uh, Hamilton, Scott, are um, doing anything more than perhaps washing their hands more appropriately like they should at all times. Um, But the hysteria that they're trying to build out of this is starting to become deafening. So we're going to have to talk about it. I mean... Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, I, I don't know what to do. I mean, they've, they've, Major League Baseball is talking about it. All the major leagues are, NFL, NBA, NHL are all talking about it. The uh, Quebec is looking at canceling the World Figure Skating Championships. The Japanese, the Japanese Baseball League is postponing the start of their season. Italy is now canceling, not just having no fans, they're canceling all sports events, including Olympic qualifiers in Italy. Um, it, it just, it goes on and on and on, and... and I mean, we were talking about it last hour. I just, at some point, to me, and I'm not a communicable disease expert, clearly. I don't even play one on the radio. Um, But the reality is that we've got so many other diseases that 
are being transmitted and people are dying from. People die. I, I mean, I, I know it's a horrible thing, and I'm not trying to belittle it or make it well, we're all unimportant. Going to. But not only that, I mean, we don't want to expedite it. No. But people do die of stuff, and I don't see any of the panic from things that are causing vastly more deaths and vastly more hospitalizations and vastly more illnesses. That are preventable. Could be. But even if they're not, even if not, like, and we said the flu or car accidents or diabetes or cancer or any of these things, I'm not seeing any of the panic that flows from this, which is still on the grand scheme of things. Last hour, we talked with a guy who, a Mac professor, and we were talking about whether or not all the talk about it is creating more worry about it. And I said, if you every day on the news started the newscast by saying, today we had this many cases of the flu diagnosed and this many cases of cancer and this many, this, by the time you got, if you did it in sequential order, you would have to have an hour long newscast just to get to coronavirus. But it has captured the imagination of people and now, you know, who knows what. When Toronto were in uh, bidding for the Olympic Games, and I forget what year it was, it was the year that they ended up in Atlanta. So it had to be... Well, that was 1990, right? So it would have had to have been right um, mid-80s before it was awarded. And there was the standoff in uh, Montreal with... um, with some natives. 96 was Atlanta, pardon me. So, yes. So, it would have been, uh, I think it was David Peterson was in uh, power at the time. And um, CNN led every news report with the hostilities in Canada. And I'm telling you, that influence, because CNN had a lot of drag back then, it influenced, where they opened with every newscast saying about the crisis in Canada, the standoffs. So you can create, you can make a mountain out of a molehill if you decide to, and you have the media power to well, be able a to balance. do it. Well, there's a balance. There's a balance. Not when you have an objective, there's no balance. Well, no, there's a balance. You have to cover the news. You have to cover the news. And the balance is finding, okay, what is coverage and what is... Hysteria. Hysteria. And, you know, I don't, I, I think it would be irresponsible not to cover this. I think it'd be irresponsible not to talk about the coronavirus. The question is, is CNN doing it 24 hours a day? They've just simply moved from Donald Trump 24 hours a day to coronavirus 24 well, hours a day. And talking about how Donald Trump isn't doing the job. Now, uh, when you talk about canceling events, uh, I was contacted by a group out of Toronto that uh, have been hired by the Chinese government to provide a coaching staff. Uh, which they've done. Um, I won't say who it is because I don't know if it's public or not. But I wouldn't talk to them until it was decided if we were going to the finals. Um, so uh, we talked about playing two or three exhibition games if we had a layoff, which we now do. And I said yes, and we, we've sorted out almost all of the details. And it was, and if, if it happens, I guess this is not an announcement because I don't know what's going to happen. The Chinese national team were going to play us two or three times. And um, whether or not that happens, whether or not Hockey Canada would let that happen, whether the OHF, Ontario Hockey Federation, would let it happen. But I got an email on Sunday, and he says, you know, we gotta, we're just going to take a step back to see if they're even going to travel. And, of course, you know, if the real McCoys are going to play the Chinese national team, which they wanted as a warm-up because they're going to the World Championships in April. So they've got some players from the KHL and some players from the Elite League and the Czech and feel that we're the best suited in Canada for them to come and train against. So, you know, a senior 
or uh, an Allen Cup Hockey League team. And it probably would have been um, Brantford or Hamilton had they been beat out, but they contacted me. Maybe they knew something I didn't know. Um, but they may not travel here now. And so we talked about some expenses, and I let them know Saturday. I said, you know, you're going to wear them all. Mm. Uh, because I don't know if anybody will come and watch it, and I don't know if my athletes will compete. Now, what he had told me earlier is that they were being quarantined wherever they are, because most of them are playing in pro leagues right now. Mm -hmm. They're being quarantined. They would come to Canada to be quarantined again. So they're really, there was a lot of steps that a lot of people that are a lot smarter than me were making them take. I don't even know if that will happen now. And it would be interesting. So back to the Allen Cup, if if in fact this continues to rise at the exponential level that it's rising at now, it, it may in fact affect our attendance, which could be very expensive. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Don Robertson in studio as he is every Monday at this time, talking a little sports coming out of the weekend and Don... I don't know if you stayed up any of the games last week in California for the Leaf games, the late night games. I uh, I was up and watched parts of all of them. And I got to tell you, you, you've been a hockey coach for a long time. You've been in hockey for a long time. If you're the coach of a team that one game can beat the Tampa Bay Lightning and look one of the best teams in the league and look dynamic doing it, and then you go and play the three worst teams or three of the worst teams in the league and look like you have never played hockey before. What do you say to that team? What do you say in the dressing room to that team to try and motivate, inspire, push, cajole, direct? What do you do? Well, first of all, five years ago, that would have been a challenge to get a win out there because those teams were all top-shelf teams, and now they're not. Now they're not. And I think then you, I mean, really, it's hard to... I, I have no clue how you motivate a guy that's already making $10 million and it's guaranteed for five years. I don't know how Or seven you, or eight. Yeah. I, I don't know how you do that other than you walk in and start talking about pride and self-respect and like you got to make it personal. Like you guys have got to show some pride. This is embarrassing and I think you, but. But how long can that last? How many is, times can you do that? The problem is on that trip, after you do it, after the second game, I mean, obviously it's not working and you, you know, I think you probably, you can't, but you, you want to walk in and say, well, what I've done in the past, just don't go in because clearly there's nothing you're saying is resonating with anyone, but it's like, you know what, you don't want to do what we want you to do. Why don't you figure it out? The challenge is that it's great, not great, but it's, it's understandable if the team stinks. If you've got no talent, the team stinks, and you know you're going to lose every night. Okay, all right, but here you've got a team that has talent and shows it can win, shows it can beat good teams, and then seems disinterested against bad teams, which I think is driving the fans of the Maple Leafs nuts because you know they can play. It's when they decide to play that they look like they're a team that's worth watching. Well, I mean, in 2014, we, we could get, I mean, we had a pretty good hockey club then. You know, we had so many NHLers and everything else, and and you get in the playoffs. And I used to like going in and saying, you know what, the team that, de- the team that decides who wins this game is in this room. It's not in the other room. 
And it's kind of a reverse challenge by saying, you guys are clearly the better team. You just have to go out and outwork them. And uh, sometimes you play against a team has got a little bit more talent and you have to come up with a different approach to it. But when you've got – the Toronto Maple Leafs are a better hockey club than all three of the teams that beat them on the West Coast. By far. I don't know how Sheldon Keith – I don't know what he says to them. And I'm sure if we went out for a beer, he'd, he'd look at guys like me and you and say, what would you say? Because obviously whatever he's come up with didn't work. And the stunning part about this to me is that he's only – 40 games into his NHL career, and it looks like already he's facing some of the same challenges that Mike Babcock had, believe it or not, which was, what do you do with these? And, like, I I don't know whether it's fair to throw different players under the bus, but I think you touched on something. When you're 22, 23 years old, you've never won a single playoff series, and you're already being paid 11, 12, 13 million dollars. Why? Why should you give more? Well, what? Why should you be? You know, you've got what you want. Long-term coaches are hard to to make work. Uh, Barry Trotz was amazing in um, Nashville because he was there twelve or fourteen years, and the old saying about Jock the Mares was in St. Louis or wherever he went, it was a four-year contract and a three-year act because they stopped listening. And you've got to be an exceptional people person, coach, motivator to be able to continue to get through them after the third year because after a while they're going, you know what, I'm tired of this guy. But do you believe... He's 40 games in. Do you believe that the guys who are at the top end money-wise of the Leafs... Because, look, I, I really believe that the the guys who are scraping by on league minimum are close to it. They're, they're going to work hard because yep. they want to make their money. But do you believe that that you can get through to the guys at the top, that you can get them to really buy in and really game after game after game, every single night, give 150% effort? Not if the player doesn't want to. Sidney Crosby does every night. Uh, Connor McDavid does. Connor McDavid does. Wayne Gretzky used to try and play every game, and he tried to play his best every game. He's quoted as saying it because he would say things like, you know, if somebody's bringing a kid to Tampa Bay or uh, Toronto Maple Leaf Gardens, um, that might be the only time that kid's going to see him play. So he owed it to that kid and those people to do put on his best show. There are very few athletes in the world, and not all of them in the National Hockey League have that approach that Sidney Crosby and Connor McDavid do, who take pride in the fact that I have to be my very best every night for the people that pay the bills. That's hard to do, though. I mean, I'm not. I'm not. Again, I'm not dumping. That's on those why there's guys. not many of them that do it that are at the elite level. But I'm not. I'm not even taking a shot at Austin Matthews or Mitch Marner or somebody like that. It, when you're making that kind of money, and you've by every measure in our society succeeded, I would think it would be really hard every day to wake up with the same urgency. That a guy who's scraping by, I mean, still scraping by, is still making more money than you or I. Well, than me anyway, but maybe not you. Um, But it it would be really hard when you have reached a level of comfort to find that every night. Well, that's why it's inner pride. I mean, it really has to be the athlete himself that believes that he's there to do his absolute very best to put on a show every night to make the guys pay. So when I started talking about that, I named two players 
There's 31 teams in the NHL. Now, I don't get to see them all on a regular basis, but I'm talking, we were talking about guys that are making $10 million a year, pure superstars. Well, Crosby makes $8.7 million, his number, but um, Ovechkin probably is in that league, but I don't watch him every night. I don't think he's a wide open every night, but more often than not, he is. So you go through the league and look at guys that are making $10 million, and it's a tough chore. It's not a personal thing against a guy that's not doing it. It's just accolades to the Crosbys and the McDavid's of the world that are doing it because it's hard to do. They play 80 games, and sometimes you see it happen. It used to happen more when every game wasn't televised, but when the games are on late and you know everybody in Toronto isn't watching you, you know, they don't take a night off, but it's hard to get yourself up. I, I would think if no other reason, though, if, if the money isn't enough, and, and again, not just the highest paid players, look, there's not a guy on in the NHL who's not making an okay living. Even if you're the bottom salary, you're still doing okay. You're still, you're, you're not. Well, the guys that are making the bottom salary that you're talking about working so hard, they're now in the league and they don't want to make the bottom salary. They want their next contract to be, it's not going to be $7 million, but they want it to be $2.1 or $2.8 million. So, you only need three or four one one decent contract at that. It you know you're not driving a truck when you're done. But even if the money was not the issue, I would think, especially in the Toronto market, the fear of and maybe it's not fear, but the fear of every day knowing that everybody's reading or hearing or listening or watching about another embarrassing. Uh, th- th- surely there's just, the fear would motivate you. To be out there every day grinding. Well, when they when they don't play their best, I was going to say when they play lay an egg. When they don't play their best, the first thing they they don't one of the things they don't do is get on social media on the way home on the plane and start looking at what the Toronto papers are writing about them. I mean, if they're smart, they just stay away from it. You believe that? I think that I think that I Don. I have had so many athletes over the years tell me I don't read the paper. I don't read the paper. I, I ignore it all. And yet, I can Who's tell. Write something bad. I can tell very quickly when they that they know when I've written something bad about them. Very quickly, it becomes amazingly evident that that I've written something bad about them. Well, but the and the difference is in 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 this city versus Toronto. I mean, we're dealing with guys that are making millions and millions of dollars a year, and if we're talking more specifically about the Ticats because you don't cover the Leafs much. There's a wage gap there. Yep. Right, and a bad story could cost them their job. The, and, if you're, and, and if you're talking about football players, these guys' contracts are all guaranteed long-term. Hockey players. Yeah. Yeah. Like Toronto Maple Leafs, that's what we were talking about, yeah. right? So yeah. if those guys have all got four or five years of guaranteed money going to make 70 or $80 million a year, I'm not totally convinced they give a rat's behind if they have a couple bad games in a row. And the problem is, I don't know... Aratmetoko. Aratmetoko. <laughs> there you go. So, like, if they don't do well in the playoffs, what are the consequences? They golf all year. They don't need to have a good playoff no, to get a big contract. That's, They've all got big contracts. That's the challenge. That's the challenge is how do you show up every day? And, and, and you know, like, it's not that they're... I don't know. It, 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 it just appears so obvious that this particular team can do it. And so the, the only thing you can, the only conclusion you can come to when you see that they can do it is that when it doesn't happen, 
that it's because they have not put the same into that game. How much better do you think the, we're talking about Leafs, the Toronto Maple Leafs would be if every year they had to redo their contract? Instead of getting a six-year contract worth $80 million or 67 or 50, pick a crazy number. But when if they had to earn that money every year and you're a 45 goal scorer and next year you get 17 and you're going to go from 8 million to 4 million cuz it's all performance based, do you think they'd have a 17 goal season? I'm guessing no. I think you'd see a lot of guys never pass the puck cuz they'd want to score the goals themselves to get the to get the goals, but I I look at the I look at the flip side of this and I look at the Toronto Raptors who they share an arena with. They share an organization with who come out regardless of how many injuries they have, regardless yeah. of what the situation is, and they play absolutely ho- as hard as possible every game. I haven't seen, a, I haven't watched every single minute of the Raptors this year, but I haven't seen a Raptors game they where, you, hard. where you haven't said, those guys worked hard today. Yeah, those guys worked. They don't, now, you know, they lost a shootout 1-1. I mean, a team like that should score more goals. I mean, you can work hard and not win. You're but to lose team. three in a row against n- not great West Coast League teams is not good. You're playing a team that is one of the bottom teams in the league. And as was pointed out on one of the broadcasts at the end afterwards, one of the guys said, I can't remember who it was, I, I'd love to give him credit, I can't remember who it was, but said the last 90 seconds of that game, I think it was the Anaheim game, the Leafs were just pouring it on. They were all They pulled their goalie and they were all over them. They were fighting for pucks, they were banging in the corners, they were, and he said, if you could do that for 90 seconds, the good teams do that for the entire game. Why can you only do that when you are desperate, as opposed to saying, we're going to show up at the start of the game and do that, and we'll swamp you so that five minutes into the game, we're going to be up 3 nothing. The Leafs have the talent. That's that's the part about this that, that I come back to, is the, the question about how as a coach do you do this? They've clearly got the ability They've shown in spurts that they can do it when they really want to. It's that they don't look so often that they really want to. We were in Brantford and down two games to one and went into the third, before the third period, then the second period, because it's a game we had to win. We won it 2-1. And I said, the intensity that we need in the third period is if you can play it, like there's 30 seconds left and we're down a goal and the net's empty, if you can play twenty minutes. You can play thirty seconds like that. If you can figure out how to play twenty minutes like that, they can't beat us. Of course, of course. If the Leafs played every, and we blew them out two one. If the Leafs played forty minutes with the intensity that they did in the last minute and a half, not even sixty, they would win the vast majority of their games. The vast majority of their games. They have that kind of talent. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. So, Don, a very cool story about Charles Barkley. Uh, today that I wanted to tell you about. He, uh, not surprisingly, has collected a ton of memorabilia over his career. Let me turn your mic on here. Uh, I think so. That's what they're talking about is his memorabilia. He's got his MVP award, uh, 1993 NBA MVP. He's got all kinds of other stuff. And he said that he was going to leave it all for his daughter. She could have all of it. And she and he have now come to some sort of decision. They were talking and there's only one thing. He, he wanted to take some of the memorabilia and sell it on auction to pay for housing in the town in, is it Arkansas or Alabama where he's from? Alabama, I think. Um, 
Where is it here? In Alabama, yes. So in his old hometown, there's some rundown homes for low rent, low income people. Pardon me. And he wants to build those back up and use the money he's going to pay with selling some of the memorabilia. So he talked to his daughter and uh, she has said that there's only one piece of memorabilia of his, of everything that he kept. There's only one piece of memorabilia that she wants to keep. Any guess what it might be? Well, I guess a championship ring would be. Never got one. He never won a championship. Well, that's why it would be most special. <laughs> yeah, that Trying would to trip be. me up. That would be. Um, I have no idea what it might the be. The only thing she wants, and he's got shoes and sweaters and his MVP It'll be something on. that you and I wouldn't pick, likely. Uh, the 1992 Olympic gold medal that he won with the Dream Team, uh-huh. which I think would be worth, uh, that probably is worth more than everything else in the collection. Uh, uh, that is the greatest basketball team ever assembled, unquestionably. Yeah. Unquestionably. I think that would be worth a fortune. But nonetheless, she is, uh, and good for her, that she has said, no, I want to sell everything else and we're going to build these houses for these Yeah, that doesn't make her a bad person. Not at all. Not at all. It's a fantastic, like, she's entitled to keep something from her dad's career. Oh. And why wouldn't you keep that? Is an only child, would I guess, off the I com- guess, based on I the guess. conversation? I guess. Um, then good for her for not being greedy. Yep. And saying, I think it's a great cause. Why don't we do it? How old's his daughter? To put uh, it in better perspective. I don't know. Clearly, I mean, clearly an he's adult. He's no kid now. No, he'd be mid to late 50s. So clearly so she's he's older in, than you, yeah. Yep, yep. So um, so she could be 20s, 30s pretty easily. At least, yes. And he's probably not broke. It's not like he's selling the family fortune to do this. It is, um, yeah, it's a good thing. I mean, I'm, I'm full applause to Charles yeah. Barkley and to his daughter for for their willingness and eagerness to do something for the community. I mean, you know, Don, I I believe that most athletes, most pro athletes, particularly most pro athletes are good guys and good women. I I believe that most of them get it. There's a few that don't, but I think most do. They don't necessarily all get credit because they make so much money, as we were talking about last segment, that sometimes it's easy to think of them as greedy or... Whatever, but I think most of them get it. Um, I, I'm happier to see the older guys doing it that weren't making $30 million a year. Although if he was making six, if you equate that into today's dollars, it may be worth 30 I don't know. But, you know, the guys, that the, the, the good guys, I don't, I don't think anybody will ever give Bobby Orr, who quietly does so many good things, but when you hear a story like Charles Barkley and you hear the older guys doing it, it's, well, I'll tell you a better story, is the fact that he doesn't have to do it because he's got to sell it to live on it. You know, some of these guys well, he's have making to start, money. He's, he's yeah. making fine money on TV. He's, a, he's but, wildly popular now. But some guys that played in the 80s and more in the 70s, but the 80s and 90s that for whatever reason, don't have a lot, and you hear it's a hard luck story, they've got to sell it to live on it. Oh, I see what you're saying, yeah. So, but for him to have a talk with his daughter and want to do that and give back to where he came from, I mean, that's a a pretty nice story. It is heartwarming to know, again, I mean, from everything I understand about his story, he didn't come from any kind of wealth, as is the case with many, many athletes. I mean... Hockey players, if there is any athlete that probably has a better chance, and we've read about it, I mean, the cost of hockey these days yeah. is so high that the chances of a hockey player coming from a upper middle class or upper class 
is a lot higher than baseball or basketball or football for sure. Yes, without question. But most of them to, you know, to, it's good to see, it's great to see. I mean, we we dump on athletes at times. It's great to see a guy who remembers where he came from and wants to do something. Even, as I say, 55, 56, 57, whatever it is, years later that he hasn't forgotten. That's good. That's great. Uh, very quickly, this is the other one I wanted to talk to you about. Are you, so a bunch of people got arrested today in a horse racing sting operation. Um, 27 people were charged with drugging racehorses to make them go faster in the States at various races. Are you on a scale of one to 100, 100 being the most, one being not at all, what level of surprise would you be that people were drugging racehorses to make them go faster? 95? 95% shocked? No, sorry. I'm not shocked at all. No, okay, that's what I was going to say. Like, yeah, I... They used to they used to get uh, wire brush and kind of scrub their buttock a bit. Well, whatever you call it. I don't know what the hell you call it now. <laughs> Makoto. <laughs> and, pu- and put some turpentine on it before they took off to make them go a little quicker. But now there's, uh, there's lots of... Uh, I mean, if athletes do it, why wouldn't guys that aren't athletes enhance their horses a bit? And here's the... F- thing about this. I'm not particularly surprised. No, and when you say when athletes do it, some people think, oh, you know, uh, doping has largely been taken out of sports now. I don't believe that for a second. No, they're better at it. Uh, Yeah. (coughs) Excuse me. Coronavirus. Um, No. Great. Um, I don't don't believe that for a second. I think there may be fewer athletes doing it, and I think that it may not be as obvious. I mean, when Ben Johnson was doing it, his eyeballs were yellow. He had so much stuff in yeah, him. <laughs> Seriously. I mean, I don't think that, I, I think it's it's done differently, but I don't think for a second that we have cleaned up sports, whether it's horses or humans. So if horse racing is, um, I assume that's at the elite level, but I don't oh, know. Oh yeah. No, no. It, so in Big, hor- big, big money. In horse racing, are the athletes, are the jockeys the athletes or are the horses? Well... Once upon a time, Larry Walker lost the Canadian Athlete of the Year award to Jacques Villeneuve and his race car. They determined at that point that the that Jacques Villeneuve was the athlete, not his race car. The Lou Marsh Award went to the guy driving a car. By that standard, you would have to say the jockey is the athlete and the horse is just there, well, which I don't agree with. But, but I, I would bet that the better horse you got, the better chance you got to win. And I don't follow horse racing that much. Was, was, and when I say there's, uh, I, I'm only 5% surprised, I, th- th- that's unfair to the horse racing industry, but in, the reality is I'm not shocked. I guess what you, the answer to your question is, has any jockey ever been caught being all pumped up on steroids? You got this real muscular little jockey walking up who's four feet tall, but well, well, 200, you find out, 260 pounds of ripped muscles, his silks can barely hold on. Well, I, I, I think that they only want to weigh, those guys only want to weigh about 35 pounds anyway, so bulking up. But if you see a guy start knocking guys off the other horse, then <laughs> then it's full body contact. You know, I, I couldn't imagine, I don't think Sandy Hawley ever won a Canadian Athlete of the Year, but Secretariat did win a Sports Illustrated Athlete of the Year, I believe, if I remain, well, remember correctly. So, so then both are right. I do, I, you know, now that I say it though, I really would like to see a completely j- jacked jockey get up on the horse. Silks are tearing. He's like the Incredible Hulk with these things on him. Thighs just bulging under the Intimidating horse. Intimidating the other jockeys <laughs> and horses. That's right. I guess gets on Reach a, over and punch the horse right I in the face. pump you up. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think we're going to see that day coming. 
That's right. The, the jockey jumps off the horse and sprints and outraces him to the finish line. <laughs> <laughs> then you cut some questions to be asked. Uh, Don Robertson, thank you for being in today. Always appreciate it. Scott, another interesting show. Thank you. Uh, keep a note on your calendar, all of you. Allen Cup, April the 6th. you got about a month to prepare yourself, f- paint your face in Dundas Real McCoy's colors. and Hamlin Steelhawks are up to nothing. The Robertson Cup, too good for them. There you go. They play this Friday at G- uh, Breitmeyer Arena, or Dave Vanderchuk Arena. Yeah. There's another game you can check out if you would like. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.